0: Let's take our Bibles to Second Kings chapter number twenty-two. Second Kings chapter number twenty-two this morning. With this being Youth Emphasis Sunday, we're not going to highlight parenting, but we are going to highlight Christian living as presented by a child in the Bible. And uh, this is a story that may be off the beaten path for many. Second Kings twenty-two. Second Kings chapter twenty-two. This is a story that might be off the beaten path for many, uh, but uh, a story I believe that as you learn it will challenge you and uh, help you to want to be more like the Lord as uh, a, young, a young child gave his heart to Christ and we see what happens as a result. 2 Kings 22, once you have found that passage, if you were so able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We've had a lot of fun today, but we're going to settle into the Word of God and ask God to stir our hearts ...and move us with His Word today. 2 Kings 22, and look with me at verse number 1. The Bible says, "...Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jedediah, the daughter of Adidiah of Boscoth." Read verse 2 with me. Ready? "...And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the ways of David his father... And turn not aside to the right hand or to the left. The title of the sermon this morning is this: "The Reign of a Righteous Child." The Reign of a Righteous Child. Let's pray. Lord, help us tonight, as we or this morning rather, as we look at this chapter, this story out of Second Kings. Help us to be challenged by what we what we hear, what we see out of the Scriptures. Help us to go forth and do our very best to be leaders of righteousness all around us. Oh, Lord, we live in a world that is uh, under the punishing hand of God. Lord, the sin that is uh, present around us, the culture that we have been turned over to as a people, as a country, as we have strayed from you. Lord, it is time for this country to return back to America. And for us to do that, the church must lead the way. Those who attend the church must lead the way. Help us to be challenged today, Lord, to live righteous lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We do Youth Emphasis Sunday every year because we want to highlight the value of the next generation. Psalm 127, verse 4 says, As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children in their youth, as arrows in the hand of a mighty man. Now, this passage was written before the gun had been invented, and so the arrow was uh, taken and straightened out and put there in the bow, and shot at a target, and the arrow was powerful. How powerful uh, was an arrow? Just ask the target uh, that is hit by the arrow how powerful that arrow is and that target will know just how uh, how strong it is. King Saul died in battle uh, by a bow and an arrow that smote him through the heart and impaled him all the way through. Um, uh, families have been fed uh, by uh, an, an arrow. Uh, uh, war Wars have been won by an arrow. In fact, Ephesians 6 reminds us that we are at war with principalities and powers in dark places. The songwriter wrote this. He said, Onward, Christian soldier, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. How much impact can an arrow make? How much more can a host of arrows make when all fired at the same time. Every generation we have children who are coming up and through. I ride through the city of Stratford uh, around May and our graduates from Stratford High in Bunnell have a picture up all through town and I'm amazed at how large the senior class is in Stratford every year of just those public schools, not counting the private schools or the Catholic schools or all the other schools uh, around uh, the the city and how large of of, of an army of children in Stratford alone are presented into society, boy, if we could get young people to decide to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and to love their neighbors, themselves, and we shot them forth into the world, uh, what a, uh, allow them to penetrate the darkness of our world, what a great impact they can make For God, one child that is raised to love God uh, uh, can make an impact in the war against sin and Satan. Uh, One child uh, that's shot out into that darkness can pierce through that darkness and bring light to a dark world. A very high percentage of church-going American children, very high percentage, stop attending at 18 when they graduate high school and head off to college. This is a great tragedy. This is a great tragedy. But why? Why do kids stop going to church at 18? For many churchgoers, Christianity is only something people do casually instead of it being who they are. Let me say that again. For many churchgoers, Christianity is something they casually do. It is not who they are deep down inside. And your kids pick up on that just like that. Hey no, okay, time to flip the switch and act like we love Jesus. Put your clothes on. It's Sunday. Let's go to church. Oh, church is over. Let's take off the church clothes and let's put on, uh, uh, let, let, let's take off the church uh, mind and let's put on the mind of Christ and, or rather the mind of the world. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And our little children grow up and they watch us. And I'm not just talking to parents. I'm talking to all adults. They watch us as we act one way at church and we act another way outside of church. You know what they do when they turn 18? They say, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to touch that. If that's religion, no thanks, I'm out. Now, disclaimer, watch this, disclaimer. Just because someone's kids quit going to church does not give you a right to judge them. All right? I'm speaking broadly. A mom and dad can be faithful to church and love God and raise their kids right. And that child could still turn and leave church. Just because someone's kid leaves church, you don't make any assumptions about their own faith. That's between them and the Lord. But more broadly speaking, all right, I'm speaking uh, uh, more broadly here. Uh, uh, Parents uh, live one or adult, the culture church culture, we live one way uh, at church and we live another way outside of church and we turn children off. Uh, to church, but there's more to it than that. Let me get practical this morning, okay? People do, uh, speaking of children leaving church or staying in church, people do what they are, number one, what they are familiar with, what they are familiar with. Uh, you don't have people generally who uh, who are not exposed to church to their childhood, who turn to it in their adult life and go. It happens occasionally. I'm not saying it never happens, but people do what they're familiar with. Number two, people do what they enjoy. You know why people don't go back to church? Because they think church is boring. You know why we work so hard to have a fun children's program here? Because we want them to think of church as an enjoyable place to be, an enjoyable place to go. Hey, on Saturday mornings, we take our teenagers out. They hang door hangers. They knock on the door sometimes, or they meet people in the street and tell them about Jesus. And afterwards, we take them to Taco Bell. All right? And uh, why do we take them to Taco Bell? Because that's the, that's, the, um, uh, that's the carrot at the end of the string that they actually get, right? At the end of the uh, time going out. We have pizza, and we have games, and we have fun, and then we sit them down and we preach to them. Wednesday nights with master clubs, they get to play games for 25 to 35 minutes, and then they have a Bible lesson for 35 minutes. What are we trying to do? We're trying to say that church is a place where you can go and enjoy yourself, but not only do people do what they are familiar with and enjoy, they do what they Believe in, and I really think this is a big factor why kids leave churches. They really don't believe it. Then the reason why they don't believe it is because number one, it's not been made practical for them, but number two, it's not practically being lived out in front of them. And then the fourth reason uh, I believe that people stay in church or people uh, what people do people do what they are familiar with, people do what they enjoy, people do what they believe in, people do what they are good at. Now I'm going to just hit this real quick and move. But watch this now. We want our children in this church to have a practical, developed gift that God has given them that when they turn 18, they can stay plugged into church and get right into serving God and get right into being involved. And they don't sit there and go, well, it's all theory, but I don't know how any of it works, so I'm out of here. Right? We want people to turn, we want our children to turn 18 and say, I know how to sing in a choir, and I know how to pass an offering plate, and I know how to help in a nursery, and I know how to go out soul winning, and I know how to teach a class, and I know how to get involved, and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna give my heart to Jesus, and I'm gonna stay in church. Could it be that children do not follow us into a life of Christian living because we are not modeling for them the type of life that makes it desirable? Now, watch this. This comes down to uh, righteous talk with an unrighteous walk. Righteous talk with an unrighteous walk. When the righteous rule, they raise up yet another generation to be righteous. When phonies rule, they raise up a generation where our children are repulsed by and want nothing to do with our faith. But what happens when a child decides to stand up against sin and cult and culture around him and live for God? Let's jump in this morning and look at 8-year-old Josiah out of um, uh, 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 Second Kings 22. And we're going to see what happens when a young man gives his heart to Christ. A young person gives their heart to Christ and, and do what God truly wants them to do. Number one, first of all, notice Josiah's decision. Josiah's decision. Now, if you go back and and read the story, you'll find out that Uh, Josiah's father was killed in a mutinous way. Uh, There was someone trying to commit mutiny in the kingdom and they killed him and he had an 8 year old son named Josiah and those who committed the mutiny uh, were put down to death and 8 year old Josiah was next in line to be the king. He was the prince and he was made king of the nation of Judah. And uh, Josiah steps up at 8 years old I'm sure the first 10 years he had a board of advisors and counselors around him uh, to help guide him and help him lead the country, but Josiah at a very young age decided that he was going to live for the Lord. But you'd say, well, let me get into the subpoints here. And by the way, if you are new to our church, you got a bulletin on your way in, on the back of there is a fill in the blank outline. Let me encourage you to fill in the blanks as we go here, okay? Letter A notice, his family. His family. Look back at Second Kings twenty two and look at verse number one. The Bible says Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned thirty and one years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jedediah, the daughter of Adadiah of Boskath. And some may think that Josiah was such a godly man because he grew up in a godly atmosphere. And he was just simply taking the baton from dad and moving forward for the Lord. But that is not at all true. Look back at chapter 21 and verse 19. 2 Kings 21, just, just a few verses up from where we are. Look at verse number 19. The Bible says. Uh, Am- Ammon was twenty and two years old when he began to reign. Now this is Josiah's father. And he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Meshulameth, the daughter of Haruz of Jotbah, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord as his father Manasseh did. And he walked in all the ways that his father walked in. And served the idols that his fathers served and worshipped them. Look at 22. And he forsook the Lord God of his fathers and walked not in the ways of the Lord. And the servants of Ammon conspired against him and slew the king in his own house. And the people of the land slew all them that had conspired against Ammon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his stead. So the Bible says that Ammon did all that was evil. He said, as his father... Manasseh did. Now if you uh, go back a little further in, in the passage, you'll find that Manasseh reigned 55 years over over Judah. He was, um, I believe, Judah's longest tenured king and he was also Judah and Israel's, in my opinion, their most wicked king. He was more wicked in my opinion, than even Ahab. Now um, he did all sorts of evil and he ruled for over five decades. Now, we understand we understand that, uh, that Josiah did not have a mom and dad to teach him right from wrong. He had a mom and dad to teach him that wrong was right. He had a mom and dad to teach him to be evil. You say, well, maybe, you know, did he turn the, turn the tide and maybe his son worshipped God? Well, hold on. Look at 2 Kings 22 and look at verse 31. To understand just how impressive Josiah's feet is in chapter 22, we must look at his family lineage and see that the, uh, the the cards were stacked against him, if you will. The odds were not in his favor. He was not given a Christian or a godly heritage, a heritage of pure Judaism, no. Instead, he was given a heritage of evil and sin. Look at Second Kings 23 and look at verse 31. 2 Kings 23 and look at verse 31. The Bible says, Jehoahaz, this is his son, was twenty and three years old when he began to reign. And he reigned three months in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was uh, Hamutal. I had to practice these names before church, by the way. The daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all his fathers or his ancestors had done. Josiah did not do right because of his exposure. Watch this. He did right in spite of his exposure. He did right in spite of. Dad, evil man. Grandfather, even more evil. Son, evil man. But he decided, I'm not going to follow in that path. Letter B, notice his faith. We see his family. Let's look at his faith. Go back to our opening text, 2 Kings 22, and look with me at verse number 2. 2 Kings 22, and look at verse number 2. The Bible says, speaking of Josiah, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, "...and walked in all the way of David his father." Hey, praise God for young people who look at a home that is dysfunctional because of, dis- of sin and decide they're going to rebel against Satan and sin and they're going to give their heart to God and they're going to live for Him and say, I don't want what Mama had. I don't want what Granddad had. I want to live for Jesus and I want to do right and I don't want to have anything to do with you, Satan. I'm going to give my life and I'm going to live for the Lord he chose to give his heart to Jesus and walk away or give his heart to God rather and walk away from a life of sin and destruction and utter uh, utter rebellion from God and he chose to live his life for the Lord and i just want to say today that we need young people in our culture who will be fed up with the lies that satan sells and the lies that satan uh, advertises and say i want nothing to do with the devil i want nothing to do with this pain and hurt give me more of jesus His faith. But not only do we see his faith, we see his focus. Look at chapter 22. and Look at verse 2 again. The Bible says, And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside, look here, to the right hand or to the left. You know what that means? From the day he made this decision at 8 years old, until he was 39 years old, he died on the battlefield, until the day he died, He walked right down the path and said, the Lord is going to have my heart. And I'm not going to waver to the right, and I'm not going to waver to the left. I'm not going to take a break. The Lord will have my heart. I'm going to live for the Lord. Oh, that children would see parents and teachers and adults in their church who are in their place week after week and month after month and year after year and decade after decade and for a lifetime. Some of you may have children that have wandered from the Lord and your heart is broken. You stay right where you are. You keep going to church and you keep loving God. And one day when they've been broken enough by sin, they're going to look at you and say, uh, my mom and my dad and my grandma and my granddad, they're still going to church and their life is still in order and my life is a wreck. I want what my granddad has and I'm going to stay right there. I'm going right back there to where he is. Mom and dad, you have to stay focused. Church member, you have to stay focused. Let's not move to the right hand. Let's not move to the left hand. Let's make a decision that we're going to, in spite of our family, in spite of our circumstances, in spite of all of the things that are against us, we're going to give our heart to the Lord. And we're going to be faithful for a lifetime. Number one, Josiah's decision. Number two, notice Josiah's discovery. Josiah's discovery, it had been nearly 60 years since Judah had a righteous king. As we will see, it only takes one generation for a nation to completely forget God and to turn uh, to great wickedness. Notice letter A, his repairing of God's house. His repairing of God's house. Look down at verse number 3 and we see just how bad things had gotten. Look at verse 3. It says, and it came to pass in the 18th year of king Josiah. So now he's 26 years old that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azalia, the son of Meshullam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord saying, "Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, and the keepers of the door uh, have gathered of the people and let them deliver it into the hands of the doers of the work that have the oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to prepare the breaches of the house unto carpenters and builders and masons and to buy temple a timber and hewn stone to repair the house. God's temple had completely fallen apart. It was in shambles, right? The roof was probably leaky and the doors didn't really work real well and uh, the floorboards are maybe coming up and Uh, There was uh, walls that maybe needed to be painted, if we're using more of an American analogy of buildings. And uh, listen, Solomon's Temple, you go back and read how it was built. It was a building worth well into the hundreds of millions, if not well over a billion dollars by today's standard. It was the most gaudy, ostentatious, beautiful building maybe ever built in the history of humanity. But as Israel had turned their back, Judah had turned their back on God, what had happened was the temple had fallen into shambles. How do you heal a nation that has fallen in depravity? You begin by churches being spiritually repaired. I look around at our country today and I say this with great humility. I don't say this to be braggadocious in any way. White Oak Baptist Church is an anomaly in our culture. Our country does not have a White Oak Baptist Church in every corner. There are churches on many quarters, corners, but most of those churches are are dead. They have dead religion. Dead religion. Folks go in and they say a few prayers and it's very somber and very serious and uh, it's very uh, shallow and uh, very artificial and they go home with some ritualistic things, uh, uh, ceremonial things done, but their life has not changed. Our children grow up And they see that and they say, no, thank you. If you ask the average person in Stratford what their religion is, most of them will tell you Catholic, but most of them don't go to a Catholic church more than a few times a year. They don't want anything to do with it. If you go to the Southeast and you ask the average person what their uh, affiliation is, they're going to tell you they're Baptist. But most of them don't go to a Baptist church more than a few times a year. How do we repair a culture that is broken? How many of you this morning would agree with me that our culture, sin is broken our culture? Amen. You all agree? You're here today. Obviously, you believe that. How do you repair it? Well, we've got to get back to fixing the churches. You've got to get back to fixing the churches. We, and listen, it's not just the pastor. Oh, we need pastors who are sincere and fervent about God. But we also need church members who are sincere and fervent about the Lord. You say, well, if the pastor would be a better pastor, uh, uh, church would be better. And while that very well may be true, I also believe if church members would be better, then maybe the pastor would be pushed to be a little better. Amen? And I know this, I can't fix you and you can't fix me, so let's just all focus on ourselves this morning. Amen? Is repairing of God's house. This isn't about, I'm not preaching a sermon today about fixing up a, a building and grounds. Well, I think we need to be good stewards of the property that God has given us. We are the church, and this property is not the church. One day, the government may take our building and grounds from us, but they can't, they can't shut down White Oak Baptist Church. His repairing of God's house. Let her be his reading of God's Word. Look at chapter 22 and verse 8 and Hilkiah the high priest this is amazing he's the high priest said in shape and the scribe look here i have found the book of the law in the house of the lord hilkiah you are the high priest you lost the bible you did not even know where it was I have. They're 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 in there. They they maybe rented a few dumpsters. I don't know. But they're hauling all this garbage out, and they're cleaning up, and they're they're fixing uh, uh, rooms, and they're and they're wiping out cobwebs, and and they're having a deep clean, a deep uh, renovation of the temple. And all of a sudden, they discover hidden in a box in a corner the law of the Lord, the book of the law of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. You say, well, not only did they lost the book, they lost the truths in the book. And were completely oblivious to them. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. And Shaphan the scribe uh, showed the king saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And it came to pass when the king had heard the words of the book of the law that he Rent his clothes. This was a cultural sign of grieving and sorrow and repentance. Verse twelve. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of uh, Micaiah and Shaphan the scribe and uh, uh, Asahiah a servant of the king's house, saying, "Go ye inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that is found." For great, look here. Look, look at your Bible. Great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book to do according unto all that was written concerning us. God's word, as it's read in our ears, should convict us to sorrow and repentance. Now, I want to say, all right, state the obvious God is a God of love. In fact, God, 1 John 4, 8 tells us, is love. God is love. Love is not love. God is love. Amen? Amen. Amen. God is love. Here's where I think we've gotten off track as a culture. And I'm talking about as a church culture. I'm speaking broadly in our Western world. We want to hyper-focus on the love of God while ignoring the punishing wrath of God. What are you thankful for this morning? Oh, I'm thankful for the compassion of God. I'm thankful for the love of God. I'm thankful for the mercy of God. I'm thankful for the grace of God. I'm thankful for uh, His patience uh, with me. He's a God of second chances. All those things are true. But how about this one? Our God is a consuming fire. Our God hates sin. Our God uh, feels an abomination in the pit of His uh, metaphorical stomach when Christians are lukewarm. Oh, we don't like to talk about that. We don't want to focus on that. But the, the law was read in the ears of the king, and the king bowed his head and said, Go find someone who knows this stuff better than me, because we are in great trouble with our God. His great wrath is going to be upon us. When God's Word is read to you, or you read God's Word out loud to yourself, is there a sense of, I need to get this area right so I will please the God who made me and loved me. God's word ought to move us to repentance. God's word ought to move us to change. Can I just say before I move on to letter C here that adults are terrible at change? We're terrible at it. You get a bad habit in your life, and that thing will hang around for two or three decades, if not longer. And uh, you can say, yep, intellectually, I agree, this needs to change, and it never changes. You can go to church, Pastor Zern can preach hard, and man, he's got spit going everywhere, snot slinging over here, and he's running all over the stage, and ha! And you go, you know what, yep, uh-huh, that's right, I need to change. And then ten years later, you're still doing the same thing. You know what, it's not just you, it's me. It's me too. I've got things in my life, I've got stubborn habits in my life, I've been trying to get rid of for 20 years. And as I read God's Word, I need to submit myself under the power of the Word of God and the authority of God and say, Holy Spirit of God, as I read Your Word, change my life, change my heart, change my actions, change my behavior, and make me into Your image. Thank God for young Josiah, a young man who had a heart that was tender and humble. And as God's Word was read, he said, Oh, Oh, we have gotten this so wrong. Oh, we are so sinful as a culture. Oh, we must do something about it. Let her see his realization of God's punishment. Look at verse 16. By the way, let me give you a... We're skipping some verses, so let me give you quickly what happened. These men, these religious men, who have no idea what they're doing, they go find a woman in a, 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 a college of theology. And uh, this woman is a prophetess. And she's the last person in all of Judah who has any spiritual sense in her being. And she says to them, she prophesies to them, she says, Hey, look, yes, um, you're in great trouble, okay? Uh, Because the country has strayed from God, and God is going to punish this country, okay? Go back and tell your king this. And we pick up in 16. And they take her message back to the ears of the king. Thus saith the Lord... Behold, I will bring evil upon all this place, and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read. So that's what's going to happen. Now we see the why. We see the word because in 17. Here's why. Because they have forsaken me, and have burned incense unto other gods, and they might, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Here we get the why the Jews would be punished as well as their motives and why they were doing it. Look here. It says, They have forsaken me. They have burned incense unto other gods. They've gone and worshiped other gods. And then we see the, the 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 motive. Look here. That they might provoke me to anger. They did it on purpose. They said, someone said, You know, you do that, you're going to offend Jehovah. And they said, Okay, watch this, Jehovah. Well, that's bold right there. You say, I would never do something like that. You ever done sin knowing you were doing sin and just went, eh. Eh. It's no big deal. Eh. I'll wear what I want, talk what I want, go where I want, watch what I want, live how I want. Eh. It's no big deal. Whatever. Eh. You are provoking a God who loves you. You are provoking... A God who created you. You are provoking a God who sent His Son to die for you. You, if you're saved, are provoking a God who saved your soul from hell. He wants a relationship with you. You say, well, how dare God be angry? Well, let me just put it in terms all of us can understand. If I treated my wife the way the Israelites were treating treating God, everyone would understand why my wife would be angry at me. And after all God has done for us... As a people, we go and live how we want. You know what? God's a little angry over that. God's a little offended over that. God says, I don't want you to rationalize your sin. I want you to realize there is punishment for sin. Josiah's decision, Josiah's discovery, notice number three, Josiah's devotion. His devotion. Josiah realizes that Israel is in great trouble. Judah is in great trouble and he's going to do everything he can to stay off the wrath of God and the punishment of God. And I'm going to tell you, we're going to read some verses here. He's going to go to extreme measures. Letter A, we see his covenant before the elders. His covenant before the elders. So he calls a meeting. He calls all the leaders of Israel together. He'll turn over to chapter 23. And he's going, to, uh, he's going to lead the way and leading the country back to righteousness. Look at verse 1. And the king sent, and they gathered unto him all the elders of Judah in Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests, and the prophets, and the people, both small and great. And he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord. Underline that if you underline in your Bible. And made a covenant before the Lord. Here was the covenant. All right, here's the covenant to walk after the Lord. So I want you to picture, before we continue, I want you to picture this. He's standing up on a perch. He has a courtyard filled with all of the leaders of Israel, both small and great, all the elders and religious leaders and political leaders. They're all gathered into this courtyard from all over Judah. They're standing there, and he stands up before all of them, and he makes a covenant before the Lord with them watching, and here was his covenant. All right, he says, I'm going to walk after the Lord. And to keep His commandments, verse 3, I'm going to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statues with all their heart and their soul to perform the words of the covenant that are written in this book. And all the people stood to the covenant. That means all the people took the covenant right along with Him. What would it take for God's hand of punishment to be taken off this country? By the way, someone pointed this out to me a while back. I don't remember who it was, but I found it very interesting. You go to Romans chapter 1 and you look at the downward slope into sin and degradation to a reprobate mind. And you can look at America in the 1960s when we went into the sexual revolution and you can see the beginning of God taking his hand off this country and this country over the last 60 years sliding down into depravity and a reprobate mind. By the way, toward the bottom of the list in Romans 1 is homosexual lifestyles. And that's where we're at today. For the last 60 years, God took His hand off and said, okay, I'm going to let you have sin. You want sin? You don't want me? Go ahead. Have at it. We are dangerously close as a country and culture to being that of a reprobate mind. What does it take for God's hand of punishment to be taken off our country? Can you imagine if President Biden or even the next president at a State of the Union address were to meet symbolically in a gospel preaching church and he were to make a covenant before God to walk after the Lord and keep His commandments and testimonies and statutes with all his heart and all his soul? Imagine if Congress... And the governors of our state and the mayors of our city were gathered together for this meeting, and they all took the same co- uh, they all took the same covenant before God to say, "We're going to lead this country back." You say, "Oh, Pastor Lejeune, that would never happen." Maybe it won't, but I can tell you this much: the Christians who attend the churches, we can stand up and we can take the covenant and we can do our part. Amen. Proverbs twenty nine two says, "When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice." but when the wicked bear rule, the people mourn. Letter B, we see His consecration of the temple. Verse number 4. Verse number 4, 2 Kings 23 verse 4 says, And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priest of the second order and the keepers of the door to bring forth out of the temple of the Lord. Look here. All the vessels that were made for Baal and for the grove and for the host of heaven. And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. Look at verse 6. And he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord without Jerusalem under the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook Kidron, and stamped it small to powder, and cast the powder thereof upon the graves of the children of the people. Did you catch that? In the temple of the Lord, they had altars set up to Baal or Baal with gardens or groves around them where people could go in in a little mini garden inside the temple and worship a false god in the temple of the Lord. And he said, rip all that out, burn it and take the ashes and sprinkle it on the grounds at Bethel or the house of God. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter number 6 for me. Baal, as he's known by most churchgoers, phonetically pronounced Baal, Baal was a god of fertility, both of the ground and of human sexuality. When you worshipped Baal, you were worshipping uh, fertility. Yes, uh, fertility of The ground, yes, fruits and vegetables, and uh, they believed that the god Baal or Baal would bring in a great host. But uh, that was also symbolic of uh, the 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 fertility of the womb and human sexuality. And what had they done? They had set up a temple, or they had set up an idol inside the temple of the Lord, where they were worshiping human sexuality. First Corinthians six, verse sixteen: What know ye not that he Which is joined to an harlot is one body. For two saith he shall be one flesh. For he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Underline those words. Flee fornication. Circle them. Highlight them. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Can I give you the uh, Richard English version here? Okay? Are you a bunch of morons? What? What? Like, are you serious? What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you? Which ye have of God? Look here. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. There are a lot of times where I'm reading through the Old Testament and I go those knuckleheads, they did what? They said what? They acted how? And God says, yeah, you know, you're kind of guilty of the same thing in your own way. We have a problem in our culture where human sexuality is now worshipped. It's worshipped. I highly believe that if we could take sex and put it back in marriage and leave it there, a very high percentage of our culture's problems would go away all on their own. That's my opinion, but I really believe that. God made that act to be between one husband and one wife for life. There's a lot of hurt by children who don't know who a dad is or a mom is. Satan has taken this desire that is put in almost all humanity and he has weaponized it against us. And Christian, when you, if you have put your faith and trust in Christ alone to be your Savior, the Holy Ghost of God moved and dwelled inside of you, you are now a temple of God. Yes. And when you go off and you practice in premarital, extramarital sex, mm-hmm. pornography, Romance novels that are erotic in nature, you have set up your own grove and idol to bail inside your own temple. Amen. And Josiah said, rip it out! Get it out of there! Burn it! Pour the ashes out! No more! The temple of the Lord will be a place where we worship God and God alone. We need our temples in today's day, church day. We need our temples consecrated before God. We need people who say, this body belongs to the Lord and I will worship the Lord both inside and out. It's consecration of the temple letter C. We see His cleansing of the culture. Oh, He wasn't done. They weren't stopping with the temple. He started in the temple. He got the temple right. And now, boy, He's going to work. Look at what He removed. Now, He's king. And we can't do these things today, but he was king and he had the authority to do it. And boy, he used every bit of that authority. All right, what he removed... Let's look at what he removed from the culture. Notice first, he removed the idolatrous priests. Look at verse 5. 2 Kings 23 verse 5. We're going to go real quick here. Okay, look here. And he put down the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem. Them also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, and to the planets, and to all the hosts of heavens. Hey, those people that were practicing astrology, those people who were uh, uh, bowing down the false idols he gathered all those priests up and he had them put down he had them killed not only did he remove the idolatrous priests he removed the sodomites look at chapter 23 and verse 7 the bible says and he broke down the houses of the sodomites that were by the house of the lord where the woman wove hangings for the groves they were making decorations for the garden going around the idols and in those homes where acts of sodomy happening he tore down the houses. Look at verse number 8. We see He removed the groves, the idols and altars over all of Israel and He brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense up from Geba to Beersheba and break down the high places of the gates that were in the entering in the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city which were on a man's left hand at the gate of the city. So He gathers all of the groves and the high places and the altars and the idols and He has them all toward down and destroyed. Not only that, but He eliminated child sacrifice. Look at verse number 10. And He divided, divided Toph which is the valley of the children of Hinnom, or the valley of Gehenna, uh, that no man might make his son or his daughter to pass through the fire to Molech. They were literally offering infants and toddlers up for human sacrifice to please the god Molech and to become part of their culture. You say, that's horrible. And I would point you to the abortion industry that's alive and well in our culture today. We're committing the same sin they were back then, except it's in the womb instead of out of the womb. But not only did he remove child sacrifice, he removed the symbols of paganism. He wasn't dumb. Look at verse 11. And he took away the horses that the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entering of the house of the Lord by the chambers of Nathan Nathan Melech the chamberlain which, were in, uh, which was in the suburbs and burned the chariots of the sun with fire. He even took the chariots and the horses that were a part of this paganistic worship and he said, put down the horses... Tear up the chariots and burn them. Those need to go too. He even got rid of the symbols of paganism. By the way, you need to be careful about what you decorations you put on the walls of your home and what you wear on your clothing and around your neck. Make sure you're not worshipping the devil inadvertently by pagan symbolism. Next, he removed King Solomon's mountain of corruption. Look at chapter 13 and verse 14. In the high places that were before Jerusalem, which were on the right hand of the mount of corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Asheroth, the abomination of the Zidonians, and for Chamash, the abomination of the Moabites, and for Milcom, the abomination of the children of Ammon, did the king defile. And he break in pieces the images and cut down the groves and filled their place with the bones of of men. Wow. Solomon in his rebellious years had built this mountain and it had been named the mountain of corruption and it was filled with all these idolatrous temples and he went in and he tore these buildings up and then he took the bones of men and he filled the houses up with dead bones. He said, you want to go in there and worship? Go ahead. Go in there where those dead carcasses are and enjoy yourself. I'd say Josiah meant business. Oh, by the way, do you think Josiah made some enemies in the process? I think he maybe made some enemies in the process. But you know what? He didn't care. You know what he cared about? Righteousness reigning supreme. This is the most extreme. He destroyed the dead bodies of the wicked. He actually went and dug up graves of people who had led Israel astray. And he destroyed their bones. Look at 23 verse 6. And as Josiah turned himself, he spied the sepulchers that were there in the mount and sent and took the bones out of the sepulcher and burned them upon the altar and polluted it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Josiah said, God's wrath is not going to be poured down on this country while I'm king. We're going to dig up the bodies of those who led Israel astray. This would have included his father and grandfather. And we're going to burn their bones and we're going to pollute or corrupt their their remains. Lastly, notice he removed those who practiced witchcraft. Look at chapter 23, verse 24. Moreover, the workers with familiar spirits, and the wizards, and the images, and the idols, and the abominations that were spied in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, did Josiah put away that he might perform the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. He took those who practiced witchcraft, and he had them put down or killed. What's the application? We don't need to go around and blow up abortion buildings. We don't need to go around and uh, uh, collect the witches together and kill them. That's not the point. We don't need to go around and find the houses of sodomites and, and blow those houses up. That's not the point. Here's the point. Here's the point. You and I need to do business with sin in our own lives. On a severe level. Because that's what it's going to take for the righteous to reign supreme. But not only what he removed, notice what he reinstated. He reinstated Israel's Passover feast. I'm almost done. Look at verse 21. And the king commanded all the people, saying, Keep the Passover. Under the Lord your God. By the way, the Passover was a symbol of salvation. It was a symbol of their being salvaged or saved from Egypt and was a picture of the coming Christ who would die for our sins to save us from eternity in hell, which is the debt of sin. The king commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as is written in the book of this covenant. Surely there was not holding such a Passover. From the days of the judges that judge Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel, nor the kings of Judah. Wow, that was quite a Passover. But the 18th year of King Josiah, wherein the Passover was holding to the Lord in Jerusalem. But not only did he reinstate the Passover feast, notice lastly, he reinstated a righteous leader. Look at verse 25. This is my favorite verse in both 22 and 23. Look at 25. Let's read it together. Ready? Here we go. And like unto him was there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, neither after him arose there any like him. Isn't that wonderful? He gave the Lord his heart. I am burdened for our country. I am broken over the sin of our culture. You say, Pastor, is it hopeless? I don't believe it is. We're at a fork in the road as a country. We're either going the way of perdition and destruction morally. Or we're going to bend back to the Lord and have revival. You say, Pastor, there's 250 million plus people in this country. I'm one. What can I do? Josiah was one. And he, he brought the country. And he say, he was king. I'm not king. You know what? You lead where you lead. And if we'll all do it together, I think God can do something great. Amen. You say, Pastor, which of those two paths do you think we take? Well, call me an unrealistic optimist. But I believe we're going to make it back to the Lord. Yes. I just believe that. You say, well, pastor, that's not uh, what I think. That's okay. I respect your opinion. I do. I mean that. I respect that. But American Christians got to wake up right now. We've got to dig deep into the heart of our own heart. Dig up the bones of sin. and We've got to burn those bones. We've got to quit being enamored and flirting with the world. Teenagers, we've got to quit playing with sin on our phones. Playing around with stuff that's just sinful and wicked. And by the way, it doesn't stop with the teens. There's a lot of private things going on on phones with adults that's got to go. We've got to get real with ourselves. We've got to get real with God. And we've got to find accountability. And we've got to get help. When American Christians, Christians at White Oak Baptist Church, decide, hey, I'm going to live holy and righteous before my God and I'm going to lead others around me to do the same, we can have a revival in this country the way Josiah led one in Judah. You say, is it going to last forever? Oh, I don't know. But I know this. We can affect our generation, and we can affect the next generation. Let's stand to our feet with our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Every head bowed, every eye closed. This is not a typical Sunday morning type sermon But boy, sometimes I think we need the pastor to grab us by the shirt collar and shake us a little bit. We need to be reminded of just how serious this situation is.